Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Morning, Southbridge. Now, let me ask you a question as we get started today. Um, do you believe those words we just sang? That you're no longer a slave to fear. Let me tell you something. Hearing you sing those words was an encouragement to my heart already today. And uh, it's great to be. It seems like a long time since we gathered together, doesn't it? I'm missing last week because of the hurricane. And I know it wasn't as bad here as we had anticipated it being, but we, it was in some other places. I'll talk about that in just a couple minutes. Uh, but before we jump into God's Word, I want to share a couple things that are going on in our church uh, with you. Uh, some of you know that uh, for the past almost two years now, uh, we've been searching for somebody to lead our small groups ministry from a staff position, a small groups pastor, and uh, it's a vital ministry to our church. Uh, we want everybody in our church to be involved in a small group. We say that's the place that if you want a church to become smaller, uh, you go to the small group. It's where you get connected with people that become like family. And we literally have people in our church that will testify to you uh, that their small group is closer than many of their family members. It's the people that are there for them in times of need. It's the people they share life with, and uh, we've lacked a staff position to be leading that and been searching for that staff position for about two years. Well, I've got great news for you. We believe after nationwide search, literally hundreds of candidates, we've got a, a search team here in our, in our church body, some volunteers, Mike Sisko, uh, Holly Williams, Matt Nyhoff, different folks that put in a lot, of, a lot of hours into this. We had a search firm that we hired to help us. Uh, we believe we found the guy. And uh, his name is Dave Morley. We have a picture of him. We'll pop up of he and his wife, Leslie. You may remember him. He preached here about a month ago. And uh, we've extended an offer to him. He's accepted it to come be our small groups and care pastor. And uh, yeah, praise the Lord for that. And uh, Dave and Leslie are moving from Little Rock, Arkansas. They've got a house to sell there. They're looking to rent a place as they first transition here. So if you're renting a place, don't come up to me after the service and tell me all the details about it. Uh, but you can email us at the church office and let us know that. Uh, I won't remember is why I'm telling you not to do that. It's an exercise in futility. Like uh, by, by Monday morning, there's no way I'll know that information. Uh, but if you want to email it to us, that'd be great. But would you be praying for them? Uh, friend him on Facebook. You know, reach out to them. Give them a good Southbridge welcome um, as they come. Their plan is to be here at the beginning of October. So in just a couple weeks, uh, their plan on rolling into town here, and so I'll be praying for the Morleys. Uh, they've got three kids. You'll get to know them as they, they come, and we'll have them preach, I'm sure, uh, soon after, they, after he gets here, but we're pumped about that. Then also, um, we moved our church offices, so don't show up over at Glenwood Avenue next week. Um, we are not there anymore. We moved over to, many of you are aware, we own a campus on Strickland Road just a mile down the street here. Uh, just a little bit over, 1.1 mile, if we're going to be technically accurate uh, to get over there. And so those of you who wouldn't come because it's 1.1 mile and 1 mile, you might want to start looking for a church today, later. But anyway, um, we moved the camp- our, our offices over to our campus. We've got five buildings on that campus. Just so you know, we're renovating them. Our plan is to move over there um, in a little while. And three of the five buildings are totally done right now. So, yeah, that's awesome. At the end of next week, Lord willing, uh, the fourth building, which is a children's building, it's the second largest building over there, should be ready. And, and our plan is that within two weeks, all of our midweek ministry will be over there. That Celebrate Recovery that meets on Thursday nights, the women's Bible study on Wednesday morning, the Tuesday morning prayer time, all that stuff will be over there in the next two weeks. And then the largest building, that's probably the question, right? Like, when is Sunday going to be over there? <laughs> Let me pause and say, we're not just messing with you by not telling you that information. Um, we are still a church, even if we're not over in a, what people consider a church building, been a church for almost 12 years now, right? Amen? 
We don't know yet uh, when we're going to move over there. Uh, the, kind of where we're at in that process is uh, we've got one more revision that needs to be reviewed by the city, and so be praying for that. There's a bunch of work that has been done, those of you who have been over there. Uh, there's some work that's being hesitated on or paused on until that review is done, so be praying for that, that it goes smoothly. And once that's done, we should be able to order all the materials that are going to be coming in there and be able to give you a date that we'll be moving in. So it's not like we know the date, and we're just not telling you. We really don't know the date yet. So um, that's where we're at in that process, but a bunch of good stuff's happening. People are still getting saved at our church, by the way, even though we're meeting out of school. Uh, I've met a couple people in our community that have said, I'm not coming there until you move over to your building. <laughs> well, church is still happening, just FYI. And uh, God's still changing people's lives. And the one of the ways he does it is through his word. And so we're going to jump into his word this morning and a passage of scripture in John chapter 15 that is very familiar to many of us, but I bet a lot of us don't really know what it's even saying. It's about abiding in Christ. And if you have your Bibles, we're in John chapter 15. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to open up the scriptures together and hopefully encourage each other's heart the same way we have as we worship together this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you are present with us in our midst, that you've given all authority in heaven and earth, your son Jesus Christ, and that Jesus is walking up and down these aisles and invading the lives and the homes and the families and the singles and the, and the, the people that have lost folks and the divorced and, and coming into all those situations and speaking. God, will you speak into those situations right now? God, will you speak um, through my inadequacies and my inabilities and where I fail at the very things that are taught in this passage, will you still speak by the power of your spirit through the words that go forth? They would be your words and not mine. Just use me as a vessel, and God, use us as we go out as vessels in this community to bring your love to this community. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I was thinking about prepping for this message. Uh, we have a unique experience this Sunday that we don't normally get. Because you think about our church, and you can just look around, we've got all kinds of different people, different ages, stages of life, different races, some people here, in a, any given week, somebody will get married, somebody will get divorced. Think about the, the spectrum. Somebody will have a baby, somebody will have a miscarriage. Somebody will get a promotion at their job, somebody will lose their job. There will be people that will come in, and they're like, this is the best week I've ever had in my life. And there are some people that come in, and they're like, I can't, I wish God would just come back right now, because it stinks here. So we've got like diversity that happens, and rarely do we come together with a common experience. But last week, we all had a shared experience together when the hurricane came. And, and I know that we had a shared experience. Here's why. Because all y'all went to buy water before it happened. We were all prepping, getting ready for it to happen. I know you went to buy water. Do you know how I know? Because there was no water when I went to buy it. So I would just assume all y'all had it the whole time. And there were no batteries, there were no, like all the supply, like everything. I like to hang out at Walmart. It's like a, one of those weird things about me. My friends tell me, like, I would never pick you. Like, I like to hang out at Walmart. I went to Walmart, I went down the flashlight aisle. Good luck, have fun with that. Like, what if you actually needed a flashlight that way? That would have been terrible. <laughs> anyway, I'm not trying to make you feel bad if you're hoarding flashlights. But we all had that experience of, of that coming through. And everybody had a little different experience of what happened. You know, the new burn, they got hit the hardest. It was difficult. We're sending some teams out there. If you're interested in serving on one of those teams, email us again, info at southbridgefellowship.com. We're sending one-day teams, three-day teams. You're going to bring some supplies. We've got people in Wilmington, Fayetteville, different stuff where there, there's, it really hit hard. But here in Raleigh, it seemed like a lot of hype and not a lot of stuff happened in, in that, that whole situation. But we didn't know that was going to be the case. And so we hunkered down in our houses and, you know, churches did cancel services and businesses closed and schools closed and all kinds of things happened. And, and, and if you're anything like our family, we watched about 50 hours of news. Did that happen to any of y'all? You know, it's about 15 minutes of content, but we spread it out over a long period of time. 
And, and one of the things the news did is they, they would overhype some of what was taking place. Did you see any of the sensational reporting that was going on? And I thought, wouldn't it have been fun if for announcements just now, instead we'd have brought Pastor Seth up here, and then I could have stood off to the side with like a leaf blower, and we could have had like Pastor John hose him down. I bet Pastor John probably liked that. Hose him down with a hose. He's giving the announcements and throw some, have the youth guys throw like some chairs from behind him to kind of hype up the, the whole thing. That would have been fun. And we would have been mocking stuff that we've all seen. Did you see on the Weather Channel the video that went viral? Yeah, was a, we got a little clip of it. Do we still have that here? Look at they still got it. This guy's telling us how bad the wind is, what's happening. Notice the two guys that come walking through the background here in just a second. That's yeah, pretty rough stuff. That is tough. He's like having a hard time taking a selfie and everything as he walks through there. You got this guy. Now, the Weather Channel came out. If you saw this, it had millions of views, and people were mocking it. But they tried to explain what happened. And I think the first explanation was, notice he's standing on grass, and they're walking on pavement. That's why it's a different experience. But then I thought to myself, notice he's one step away from pavement. Like, is that really the thing here? And then they said, it's because he's so exhausted that, that he was trying to resist the wind. It was harder for him than these teenagers. And I thought, they're just not buying it. That's just, a, why do you even try? Why are you even doing that? This guy's dramatizing what's happening. And I thought, it'd be so easy to mock that. I've got to figure out a way to wedge it in the sermon. So here we are. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Here's why we're actually talking about this. As I saw it, I thought, isn't that a picture of so many of our Christian lives? And let me tell you what I mean. Every week we come together, one guy talks about some information and he gets really hyped up about it, right? It doesn't matter if it's about freedom in Christ, identity in Christ, forgiveness, the gospel, joy, love, peace. It can be all kinds of good things. And some people will even amen, hallelujah. But then sometimes it's like the information we're given and the experience we're having don't exactly line up. And so you think about those guys that are in the background. It's raining. But how are we as Christians? Sometimes it's like, well, my life's better with Jesus than it is without it, but I don't know about the stuff that guy's talking about. Or I don't know about the Christianity I read about in my Bible doesn't seem to line up with the Christianity I experience in my life. But I agree with the information. There's a problem when the information we're being given, the experience we're having, don't line up with one another. Which is what we see in this picture. And oftentimes what we see in our lives. So as I was thinking about us gathering together again after this hurricane, and then in light of the passage of Scripture we're going to look at, this is a passage of Scripture that I bet you many of you have read before. We're probably familiar with it. We may know some of the words in it, and we don't know what exactly what it, what it means. It's got some churchy language in it, abiding in Christ and fruit and some different things that are talked about in this analogy that's given. But let me tell you the danger with this passage. It wasn't written just so you'd know information. It's so that you'd experience it. Let me tell you what it's actually about. Joy. That you would have complete, total joy in your life. And the danger is that I'll preach this passage today, and maybe I'll share like a Hebrew word or a Greek word that you didn't know before, and you're like, oh, that's great, or some background information that helps enlighten you and understanding the metaphor that we're going to read. But, but if all that, is that's all that happens, and the information that you're given doesn't line up with the experience that you have, that's the danger of this passage. And so as we go to John chapter 15 today, I want you to ask yourself this question. Don't worry about anybody else in the room. Just ask yourself this question. Is it possible for me, in my circumstances, my relational circumstances, my health circumstances, the financial circumstances, my age, whatever it is that's going on, is it possible for me to experience complete joy? 
Because that's what Jesus is going to talk about in this passage. He says, I, I tell you all this stuff so that my joy, the joy of the Son of God, living in the center of God's will, my joy would be in you, and that your joy, that thing that you're pursuing, that every American says they have an inalienable right to, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that, that would be full. Jesus is saying, here's, I told you this stuff in this passage so you could have that. Is it possible for you, is the question. If you have your Bible, John chapter 15. John chapter 15 happens in the middle of this passage, this section of Scripture that we're going through. We started this series in the Gospel of John at the beginning of the summer called Encounters, talking about having encounters with Jesus Christ. We're a church that says we exist to connect people to Jesus for life change. How can we connect people to Jesus if we're not connected to Jesus? How do we get connected with Jesus? Have an encounter with Jesus. And so there's a purpose behind why we're doing this series. It's because I want you to have encounters with Jesus Christ to help equip you to have others have encounters with Jesus Christ. This really is the best news that could possibly be given to us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We sang about it this morning. And what happens in John chapter 13 through 18, it's one of the most tender sections of all the Bible, so especially the gospels. And what happens in John is it's like John's going, feeding 5,000, changing water to wine, healing this guy, the leopard, all these things are happening. And then he hits the last hours of Jesus' life, and it's like slow motion. Let's take a lot of time to go through these last hours. A lot of times people come to these passages for things like funerals, or difficulty in their life. So far what we've seen is that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. That's John chapter 13. He gets low, and he shows them how to serve. And he says, I want you to love one another. This, that's how the world's going to know you're my disciples, is if you'll love the way that I've loved you. That you don't think about yourself, but you put others' interests ahead of your own. But in that passage, he also tells them, one of you is going to betray me. Peter, the, the, the spokesman that seems to be the strongest, before the morning comes, you're going to deny me three times. And I'm leaving. They left everything to follow Jesus. And he says, I'm leaving. One of you is betraying me. And Peter, you're going to blow up before daytime comes. And then he says, don't be worried. <laughs> don't let your hearts be troubled. Remember the last time we gathered together. That was the passage, John chapter 14. He says, trade your troubled heart for a trusting heart. He says, don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Why? Because I am the way. There's no other way. Not throughout history, not for any experience, not in any place. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's comforting them in that. It's just Jesus and his 11 closest friends. And then he tells them, you're going to do greater things than you've seen me do. Oh, that's something. And then he tells them the Holy Spirit's coming. And then he gives them this metaphor that becomes foundational. Once you know Jesus as your Savior, this metaphor we're about to read is foundational to the whole Christian life. So let's look at it. John chapter 15. It's the seventh I am statement when Jesus is declaring himself God, an allusion to what he says in Exodus chapter 3, when, when Moses says, who should I say sent me? He says, tell him I am sent you, God sent you, and Jesus is claiming to be God here. He says, I am the true vine. And then here it's unique, it's unlike the other I am statements, he talks about the Father. He says, and my Father is the vine dresser. And he gives this extended metaphor, Lord willing, we'll go through verse 11 today. He says, every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean, because, not of what you've done, because of the word that I have spoken to you, and then the command, I abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in, in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. So help you unpack this metaphor, he makes it really clear. When I'm talking about a vine here, I'm the vine, you're the branches, whoever abides, that's what a branch does, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. 
and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that's the point of this whole deal, life, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And then he changes the metaphor a little bit. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my, not the vine, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then verse 11. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And so here he tells us why he said the whole metaphor and all this stuff that's foundational to the Christian life, what it is to walk with Jesus, what it is to be connected with Jesus. Why does he tell us all that? Verse 11 tells us why. You ever have parents, you ever have your kids ask you, why? Why do I have to, why do I have to clean up my room? Why do I have to do these things? Why do I have to stop poking my sister in the eye? Why do I have to do And then you say words that you thought you'd never say as a parent because your parents told them to you and you swore you'd never say, because I said so. Amen. Right? <laughs> it's confession. That wasn't a prayer, that was confession. <laughs> now Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. If anybody could say, because I said so, it's Jesus. He doesn't say, abide in me, you want to have fruit, cut off the vine, like all that stuff. And here's why I'm telling this, because I said so. He gives us the reason why. Did you see it? It's so crucial when you're studying the scripture. Do you see words like that for this reason, because, so, that? He's telling you, here's the, here's the you want to know why questions? Here they are. These things I've spoken to you, all the stuff I just told you in the first 10 verses, that, my joy. If anybody's experienced complete joy, don't you think it's Jesus Christ? It says that my joy would be in you and that your joy that you're trying to fulfill and all these other trying to accomplish stuff, trying to get praise from people, trying to get enough money in your account, trying to have these pleasurable experiences, trying to get, if you had a good enough vacation, it would be fulfilled. Stop all those other pursuits. If, I'm telling you how to have, you want to fulfill that longing? I'm telling you how right here. And so I asked you the question, is it possible for you? Now some of you, when I asked you that question, you probably checked out. Can you check back in with me for one moment and just think about what Jesus is talking about? So if you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, not me, not my experience. No one else has experienced what I have experienced. Let me tell you something. I don't know how many people are in attendance here right now in this moment, but every one of you can say that because we all live a unique life. And so no one has had the exact same experience as somebody else in this room. But try to enter into the experience that Jesus has here. Jesus knows. We talk about context being important when you study the Bible. Context here, not just what came before the passage, what comes after the passage. Jesus has just proven that he knows what comes after because he just said to him, one of you is going to betray me. Before the morning, it's not morning yet, you're going to deny me three times. Guess what happens if you read in the future? Everything Jesus said is going to happen, it happens. Do you know what else is going to happen? They're on a walk right now to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you're familiar with that, he's going to fall on his face, pray with such intensity that he bleeds, and then he's going to be betrayed. And then Peter's going to deny him. And then he's going to be mocked by soldiers. They're going to play a game with him called Blind Man's Buff where they punch him in the face and say, tell me who hit you. They're going to flog him. They're going to beat him. They're going to strip his clothes off. They're going to put a thorn crown on his head. They're going to crucify him, which is a Roman torture that sent many men into insanity. He's going to die. And that's not the worst part. He's going to be forsaken by his father. The two are one. How is that even possible? He's going to be forsaken so that you can be forgiven. All of that happens because it's the penalty for your sins. Sins are when we choose something over God. When we worship creation rather than the creator, when we decide that we know better than he knows, and we've all done it. And so he went to the cross for that. But the moments before going to the cross, he's talking about joy. Does that sound strange to you? 
If there's ever somebody who had an experience that nobody else can understand, it's Jesus. And Jesus had joy in going to the cross. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, let me read you this verse. He says this. Looking to Jesus, it's telling us that we should do this as we throw off all the sin that so easily entangles. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so what we're talking about here, when we talk about Jesus' joy being in you and that your joy would be full, is something that few people, even Christians, that have ever walked this planet have experienced. But it is possible. Because it's not based on, it endures through all circumstances. The cross, the cross, as he endured the cross, he had joy. So this is, and there are people who have experienced it. There's a whole book in the Bible uh, written by a guy named Paul. It's called Philippians. The theme of it is joy. Let me tell you something about that book. He wrote it while he was in prison. It wasn't based on his circumstances. In fact, there's an interesting passage at the end where he talks about contentment. (laughs) This guy's been shipwrecked and spent overnight time at sea, put that on a news broadcast, people will watch. And he had joy. So this is possible, and the first 10 verses tell us how. And so we should pay pretty close attention to these first 10 verses because it's what life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it's what everybody on this planet is seeking. And so how do we have it? And let me tell you, it's a real simple message today. Here's the point. To experience complete joy, you must abide in Jesus. To experience complete joy, you must abide in Jesus. So we're talking about supernatural joy here. We're talking about something that most people don't experience. Not everyone can experience what I've just talked about, just so you know. But what we're not doing, just to be clear, because I want to clear up some thinking, some bad thinking that happens in the church, we're not pitting joy versus happiness. They're the same thing, just so you know. The words are used synonymously in the Bible. And so Christians that talk about, you know, unsaved people can have happiness, like that's this fluttery, fliffly, fluffy thing that anybody can have. But only Christians can have joy. Let me tell you something. I've met some Christians that are Debbie Downers. I don't want any of that. And so to us to pit, like, unsaved versus saved, and here's the thing, and it's because of these two words. It's not because of the two words. Happiness and joy mean the same thing throughout the Bible. We did a series one time called um, You Want to Be Happy. It was based on uh, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Because there's a Greek word, makarios, blessed, can also be translated happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who are persecuted. Happy are, that's otherworldly. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about here. And so if you, wanna, if you don't believe what I'm saying and you want to dive into it deeper, there's a book by a guy named Randy Elkhorn. He wrote a whole book to try and correct that thinking. It's called Happiness. I recommend you check out the book. I heard him doing an interview the other day about that book, and he talked about a guy named David Murray. David Murray lists that there's a whole bunch of kinds of happiness, though. And he listed six different kinds of happiness. Most of them fall under what's called common grace. Common grace uh, is what theologians talk about that anybody can experience. You can be a Christian, not a Christian. You experience the the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Have you ever heard that verse? It's in the Bible. Uh, The sun shines. You get sunshine. You can go on a hike and enjoy the beauty of creation. You don't have to know the creator to realize that it's beautiful. You don't have to know Jesus to know that your food tastes good. You can have deeper joy when you do know Jesus, though, because you know where that came from. And so he talks about common grace happiness. He says there's nature happiness, there's social happiness, there's vocational happiness, there's physical happiness, there's intellectual happiness, there's humor happiness. You can enjoy a comedian and not know Jesus. But there's one kind of happiness that only believers can know, and it's spiritual happiness. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. It's the kind of thing that's talked about in Psalm 32. Do you know Psalm 32? Psalm 32 says this. Blessed, it's the Hebrew word asher, a synonym for that, is happy. Happy are those whose sins are forgiven. 
whose transgressions are not held against them. A non-Christian can never know that. And you know what else? A non-Christian can never experience what we're talking about today in this passage. And so let me just pause and say this. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you can be, and you can do that today. I'll tell you at the end of the service how to do this. But if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is unattainable for you. This is not possible for you to experience. You cannot abide in Christ if you're not in Christ. Jesus is speaking to here his 11 disciples, just him and his boys, They're tight, they're close, they live life together, and he's about to tell them what's so fundamentally key for understanding all of the Christian life. And he gives them this metaphor. And so look at the metaphor with me. He says, I am the true vine. Do you ever wonder, why does he say the true vine? Why does he talk about true vine? Why did he just say, I am the vine? Some of us would just read that, we don't even notice that. Why does he talk about the true vine? Here's why. He's using a common uh, metaphor that's been used throughout the Old Testament for Israel. Israel's the vine. They're probably walking on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane through the Kidron Valley. They're on their way to the Mount of Olives. And as they're heading, you can see the temple. The moonlight probably shines on the temple. And there's this symbol. It's a vine. It'd be similar to a national symbol for us. And so if you notice how Jesus teaches, uh, when Jesus teaches a lot of times, he doesn't say like, turn in your Bibles to Leviticus 15. (laughs) He'll just say like, hey, give me your cell phone. And then he'll start giving some metaphor and analogy of things that are common in people's everyday life. And so it would be the equivalent of me coming up and going, you know, I was thinking about the American flag this week. And you all have a picture that comes to your mind. Then he redefines it. And what Jesus does here is pretty radical. Because you see the vine imagery all throughout the Old Testament. You see it in Jeremiah. You see it in Isaiah. Uh, Jeremiah talks about them being the vineyard, but they become g- degenerate. Isaiah talks about you lacked righteousness and justice. You were the vineyard, but, and I wanted righteousness, but you had bloodshed. And he, he goes through. And Israel's always the vine. But they always have bad fruit. And what Jesus says here when he says, I am the true vine, is he's radically transforming their nationalism. He's radically transforming their metaphor. And he's saying to them, I am what you couldn't be. I'm doing what you were unable to do. And the key for you is not that you're Jewish. It's not that you're from this nation. It's not that you live in the right land. It's not that you go to the right church. It's not that you believe the right things. It's you're connected to me. I'm the vine. And if you want, you want fruit, connect to the vine. You want joy, connect to the vine. You want love to flow through you, connect to the vine. Well, here's the problem for us. You go here, through here and you see this. It talks so much about fruitfulness. It's awesome. Uh, verses 1 through 16, you see if you read all the way through the, those 16 verses, eight times it talks about fruitfulness. And you see it's being emphasized. It's a theme through here. Look at verse 2. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit. So he first introduces it. He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes and it may bear more fruit. And so it starts to build too. It goes fruit and then more fruit. If you jump down to verse 6, it says much fruit. And if you keep going, it says much fruit again. There's all this fruit that's in here that's being talked about that's not possible apart from Christ. But the nation Israel, by trying to obey the law and trying to do the good things, trying to do all the right things, they, they tried... But, but they've never done it. And so then Jesus says, I've come, I've become what you couldn't be. Does that sound like the gospel to you at all, if those of you who are Christians? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he became sin who knew no sin so that he, we could become the righteousness of God. Because of his righteous life that he lived, we could have that righteousness. Why? Because he's the vine. How do we experience that? By being attached to the vine. But you know what we do? We try to produce fruit. Can I point something out to you about this passage and all the fruit that you see in there? And you can go back and look at those 16 verses and everywhere it says fruit, not one time are you commanded to bear fruit. It never tells you, go bear fruit. You must bear fruit. If you're a Christian, go produce some fruit. 
Here's the problem for us. We like instant. And do you know what we do as Christians and church and church programs and church leadership and church people and all that kind of stuff? We try to replace intimacy with Jesus with activity for Jesus. We try to put, if we just go out and do enough stuff, because if you read, now here's the reality. I've been reading on this passage for two weeks, so we're going to be here for a while, okay? Um, <laughs> if you read all the different people that talk about what it is that's being talked about here, oh, that doesn't work. If you read all the people that read about what's being talked about here with fruitfulness, they say a lot of different stuff. And what some guys will say, and I think it's based on their spiritual giftedness, not what's based on the passage. Some guys will talk about, hey, here's, you want to know fruitfulness? It's when you lead somebody who doesn't know Jesus into a relationship with Jesus. That's fruit. And you got other people, maybe more contemplative lifestyle people, uh, they'll go to Galatians chapter 5, which wasn't even written when Jesus said this, and they'll say, no, the fruit of the Spirit is the key here. And notice that the fruit of the Spirit, it's fruit, not plural, fruit of the Spirit, peace, joy, love, kindness, goodness, self-control. And they start listing out all this stuff, they're like, that's the fruit. And you got other people that will then go to the Old Testament and go, no, this image was based on an Old Testament image, so it's got to be the Old Testament fruit. What did Israel lack? Righteousness. God's still interested in you being holy. Let me tell you something. All that's true. Leading people to Jesus, characteristics in your life, holiness, God wants all of that. But you know what? If you just look at what the passage says, because if you ask a passage questions, the answer should be in the passage. You shouldn't have to go to a hundred other passages to find the answers to what you're asking in the passage. It never says, this is fruit. But if you think about what the metaphor is, the metaphor is you've got to be attached to the vine. Who's the vine? Jesus says, I am the vine. You're the branches. What happens with the vine? The vine's got life flowing through it. You want life to flow through you? Attached to the vine. And then what flows through you? Everything that looks like Jesus. Do you want to know whether you bear fruit or not? You've got to ask yourself the question, does my life look like Jesus? Not perfectly. We all have areas. I get all that. But can you see Jesus in your life somehow? I remember, well, I didn't tell the first service this, so you're getting bonus material since we lost power, I guess. Um, I remember the first time I went to church as a Christian. I trusted Jesus before I, I really started going to a church that talked about Jesus or the gospel. And I remember the first time I got invited to come to church. I was a new believer. I'm pumped. I want everybody I know that's not a Christian to know about Jesus. And, like, I don't have any tact in how to tell them that. I'm just telling them, like, hey, do you know you're going to hell? Like, whoa, hey, how's the weather? You know, like, we're just kind of getting into it. And so... I remember I go to church and I sit down and I see this dude that I was partying with a few weeks before I trusted Jesus. And I thought, when this service is over with, I'm going to go tell him about Jesus because he needs to get saved. I don't know why he's here, but i got to go tell him about this stuff. I went up and told him about this stuff. He goes, I haven't gone to this church my whole life. I, of course I'm a Christian. I didn't know what to do with that as a new Christian. Can you imagine for a minute that somebody comes to our church as a new believer that you know in some area outside of this church and they tried to share the gospel with you? How humbling that would be. I think for myself, you know, maybe it would be a Sunday where I wasn't preaching and then somebody comes up to me, they don't know I'm a pastor here, and they start sharing the gospel with me. Do you know what that means? They didn't see Jesus in my life. Do you know why the early church was so effective? It wasn't because they won the culture wars, just FYI. They didn't have their own news channel. <laughs> Shh, don't tell. It wasn't about getting the right person in office. It wasn't about getting your social agenda accomplished. It wasn't about social justice either. You know what they did? They outlived the culture around them. And it wasn't because they all got together and said, hey, how about we all do this strategy, all this assignment? No, they were so attached to Jesus Christ that Jesus was flowing through them and it was becoming evident to those around them. So that when there was, if you talk about tragedy, we just had this hurricane. There, was a, there were two great plagues that came through Rome, killed about a third of the population. When that happened in church history, people were kicking out of their own homes, their family members, because they didn't want everybody to die. Plagues coming through, like real plagues. Christians 
stayed back and loved these people, nursed them back to health, and many of them died, the Christians doing that. But the world took notice. These people love unlike we do. We'll mow each other's lawn. Like, we'll be nice. Unsaved people do a lot of stuff that we do as church activity and call it fruit. I was going to do, one of the things I was going to do is I was going to have somebody come up here and I was going to duct tape some grapes to them and have them hang out while I preach for a while. (laughs) Just so you get an idea of how silly it is to replace intimacy with Jesus for activity. And what we do is that. But here's the problem. If I would have done that, I would have had to show you a good example too. And I couldn't have somebody come up here and hold a pot, put a seed in it, water it, let the sun see it, replant it, prune it. It takes too long. And that's the reason why many of us don't want intimacy with Jesus. Because it's not going to happen in this service, just FYI. I'm so sorry. I will not say some magical word that all of a sudden you will be deep and close with Jesus. It takes time. It's abiding. It's re- All that word abiding means is to remain. Stay. You're connected. You trusted Jesus as your Savior. If you don't have to trust Jesus as your Savior, you can't abide because you're not connected. But you trust Jesus as your Savior, you get connected, then you remain. Stay there. Stay connected. And as you stay connected, the life of Jesus starts to flow through you more and more and more. So what does it look like? Because this is a metaphor, and what we see here is not a definition in this passage, but what we see here is what it looks like to actually live this out. And instead, start to experience this joy. Instead of just replacing intimacy with Jesus with activity, what does it look like when we're actually intimate with Jesus? Well, here's what it'll look like. It'll lead to your pruning. That's the first thing we see in verse 2. It'll lead to pruning in your life. And that's how you begin to experience Jesus more, to, to grow deeper with Jesus. I was talking with a friend uh, before this service, and uh, he was familiar with the seminary that I had gone to, and, and I was telling him about a quote from the founder of the seminary that I went to in Dallas, Dallas Texas. It was Lewis Berry Schaefer, and he says, a lot of times what we do in our Christian lives is actually just cheap anesthetic to deaden the pain of an empty life. And so you've got to ask yourself, in my Bible reading and my serving in the church and all the things that I do, is that really what's happening, or... Am I going after Jesus? Because when I'm going after Jesus, you know, one of the things that I'll see in my life is that he starts to prune. The Father prunes in my life. I'm not talking about punishment. I'm not talking about you being disciplined. The Bible does talk about being disciplined. God disciplines those he loves. I'm not talking about because of your sin, but he, he prunes. What is pruning? Well, I told you I had two weeks to prepare, so I read a bunch of stuff that I'm not that interested in. <laughs> I do not have a green thumb. It would be hypocritical for me to start telling you how to grow good plants. I've bought plenty of things at Lowe's that are now dead, and I still have the receipt. I don't know why, just to torture myself. I've got the receipts for these things that I've bought. And I, and I put them in the ground, and they look good at first. And ever, the neighbors are happy that I finally cleaned up the, you know, the landscaping. And then two weeks later, it's like, oh, I'm supposed to do stuff to that? I don't have time to do stuff to that. It's just going to die. That's what happens. Pruning is that God cares enough that he comes and not only plants the seed in you, you become a Christian, but he's going to do a work in you so you can have maximum fruitfulness. For He does care about the fruit. He just doesn't command the fruit. The fruit's a byproduct of the abiding. As you abide, what he does is he comes in and he starts to trim stuff away. That's what pruning is. And so you can read all about different kinds of trees and different kinds of vines and all that stuff and all the pruning that takes place. Here's what I promise you it all entails. Cutting. Cutting hurts. Pruning is painful. But here's what I learned when I was doing some of the reading. Sometimes they cut away stuff that looks really good flowers, grapes, anything that sucks energy and strength away from the branch, having maximum fruitfulness. And the trained vine dresser knows exactly what to cut away. But it wouldn't make any sense to an untrained eye. And so back up and remember the the analogy here is that Jesus is the vine, we're the branches, and God the Father is doing the pruning. What would it look like for God to take away everything in your life 
that hinders maximum fruitfulness for him? What would he take away? And some of us know right away stuff that would be taken. But some of the things that would be taken away, we, we don't have the trained eye for it. We have no idea that he'd take it away. And so we get defensive and we don't want it taken away. It makes me think about uh, this week, we're moving our offices and everything was a little disheveled throughout the week. And, and I went home for lunch one day, had some pizza. And uh, those of you that are like health freaks, you can judge me. I don't care. It's fine. And... Um, and I was at home, we've got these two little dogs, miniature dachshunds. The, the oldest dog, he's super chill. Like, he's the best dog that anybody could ever have. I'm sorry if your dog's the second best dog and you think he's the best dog. I got the best dog you've ever had. His name is Noble. And he's the reason why we bought the second dog, who's not chill. He's like the opposite. But at any rate, we got our issues. He and I have the relational stuff to work through. We'll talk about that another time. But, but Noble was there. He's chilling at the house. He's a little overweight. He's probably supposed to weigh about 10 pounds. He weighs about, my wife said he weighs like 13 pounds. I think in the first service I said he weighed 15 pounds. He weighed about 13 pounds, whatever, 25, whatever. And uh, I'm eating this pizza. I take the crust, I break it, I throw it in both their dishes, then get it. Sparty, the, the second dog, he comes running over, just like devours it. And I notice what Noble did. Noble went over to his dish. He grabs the crust. It's like hanging out of his face, like a smiley face. And he walks over to his pillow, and he just sticks his nose in the corner and sits there. I'm like, what is this dog doing? Like, what's wrong with him? So I go over to him, and I, I put my hand on him to pet him. And as I start petting him, he's like, starts growling at me. I'm like, he thinks I'm going to try and take the pizza crust from him. If I wanted the pizza crust, he'd have never had it, just FYI. But I don't want that pizza crust. And so I grab this dog. I'm not scared of him. He's like, you know, 13 pounds, whatever he is. I grab him. I turn him face to face. We're looking at each other. He's got the pizza crust hanging out of his face. Just FYI, too, this dog has the worst breath you've ever smelled of any dog. And I look at him, I go, why are you growling at me, man? And the pizza smile on his face, he just starts growling again. And his breath's blowing from the, through the pizza into my face at that moment. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. We're having the, I'm having a conversation with a dog. And he's like growling at me here. And he's afraid I'm going to take his pizza crust. I gave him the pizza crust. He thinks, he thinks I'm going to harm him? I, I love that dog. I gave it to him to bless him. If I did decide to take it away, it'd be for his own good. And then I thought about us and how we like to, to hold on to all of our stuff. Even sometimes like pride and anger and jealousy and sin and lust and, and sometimes good things. Like what if God messes with your kids? What if he messes with your dreams? He messes with... And so we, we're like noble. <clears throat> Don't we mess with my stuff? Do you know what the reality is? We're glory thieves. What God wants, he wants maximum glory from your life. Verse 8 was read earlier. These things, so you would bear much fruit that you would prove to be my disciples. It would be evident that you're my disciples. How? Because your life brings me so much glory. That's why you were designed. That's why you were made. The byproduct of that, you experience joy. But it requires pruning. How does he prune then? How does he do the pruning? Well, we know he uses his word. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, it says here, if anyone does not abide, verse 6 says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch that withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire, and burned. Verse 7, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Not just that you abide in me, but my word abides in you. What does that look like? Remember, abiding, staying, remaining, you're connected, this intimacy is happening and flowing through. Imagine if God's word was so abiding in you, flowing through you, that it impacted the way that you prayed. His word is in you. It's flowing through you on a regular basis. So one of the things he uses in this pruning process is his word. And sometimes that looks like this. You're reading through the Bible, and you see something you don't agree with, which proves you're not God. And then 
God starts to change stuff in your life through it. His word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts to our hearts. We get convicted and we, we change. That's pruning. I was preaching here a couple of weeks ago, a few, three or four weeks ago. I remember what it was. I remember at the end of the service, the time of response, I was, I was talking about repenting. And I said, well, I'm not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will speak to your heart and tell you what you need to repent of. And I just said, I, I challenge you to ask yourself this question. What do you want me to repent of, God? And I went over and I sat down and I was like, all right, I'm done. Serve the body today. And Pastor Seth comes up and he leads us in some great music. I'm like ready to sing the song. And God impressed upon my heart this question. What about you? And I'm sitting there and I want to say, I'm good. Like I was just talking to them. Like, yeah, just let them kind of work all that out. And then God said to me, not audibly, but just impressed on my heart, some stuff he had been showing me through some circumstances for a couple weeks leading up to that moment. What about your contentment? Because you think in your life you have to have everything lined up exactly the way you want it in order for you to be content. You're not finding your contentment in Jesus. That's pruning, by the way. That's God working through his word. And he wants to do it in all of our lives. If you're abiding, if you're connected, if you know Jesus. Why? Why? So you can experience joy. How do we know if it's happening? He prunes you. You see fruit. What else do you see? You see not only you're pruning, but you're praying. You just alluded to verse 7 here. You'll have bold prayers. You'll be praying bold, the boldest prayers you've ever When you're abiding in Christ, you pray the boldest prayers you've ever prayed. Look at what verse 7 says. If anyone, or verse 7, verse, that's verse 6, sorry. Verse 7 says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you. If you knew what you were asking for was going to be answered, wouldn't that change the way you asked? He's talking about this a little bit earlier in chapter 14. It's basically saying the same thing. In chapter 14, he said, if you pray in my name, you have anything. You, I'll answer that prayer. I'm going to do that. And so some Christians think that means like just saying in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer. Like, will you let me keep being selfish? In Jesus' name. <laughs> I want to do this sin. In Jesus' name. Not, that's not what it's talking about. It's not a formula. It's not like how to get Jesus to be your genie. That's not the seminar we're doing today. What does it mean when it says to pray in Jesus' name? It means to pray in God's will. Of course he's going to answer prayers. They're prayed in accordance with what he already wants to be done in your life. Here, notice the disclaimer. Is I'll do whatever you ask me to do. What's the boldest prayer you could ever ask? He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, if you're connected to the vine, so much so, and think about what this looks like in, in everyday experience. Not just information that's being given to you, in real life experience. If you abide in me in such a way and my word abides in you so that you're actually praying God's word back to him. That God's word is so saturated your life, not that you go, hey, I'm going I'm to pray the, this passage of scripture. I'm going to pray, you know, I was reading Psalm 119 this week. I'm going to pray Psalm 119 back to God. Okay, that's fine to do. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about that you've been through the pruning process, and it hurt, and so you went to God's word for comfort, and God spoke to you. You know what David says in Psalm 119? He, he's, he's appreciating God, thanking God for his affliction, which sounds nuts. But he says, because I learned your statutes. Do you know what Job says? You know Job's not being punished for being evil. If you've ever read the book of Job, it's a great Old Testament book for anybody who's suffering. There's a spiritual battle that's taking place that Job doesn't know anything about. But God is so sovereign and is able to do a multiplicity of things in our lives and the lives of everyone around us through one circumstance. Job loses 10 kids in one day. Have you experienced that? Ten kids in one. It's not because he's being punished. And it wasn't because of his sin. But God's so gracious that he even uses those circumstances still to deal with sin in Job's life, his pride. Do you know what it says at the end of Job? In Job chapter 42 and verses 4 and 5. 
He says, I knew information about you, but now I've experienced you. The more literal translation is, I had heard about you with my ears, but now I've seen you with my eyes. God does that process. And when you go through life like that, what ends up happening is it drives you to God's word as a, one who's abiding, as a follower of Jesus. And that word becomes part of you. And so when, other, when your friends have questions that you didn't have, you, you go to the word to find answers. And when you've got your own doubts, you go to the word. Is there, are there answers? And, and as you go to the word, it begins to saturate your life. Do you see how this takes time? Talk about years of experience. So that the word of God begins to flow off of your lips as you're praying to God. And he's going to do, of course he's going to do the things that he's commanded you to do in your life. He empowers them, enables them. So we're going to talk more about next week, the Holy Spirit in your life. He's, he's doing, he's answering prayers. He wants you to pray. So, so when I say bold prayers here, some of you naturally think about what's the most audacious thing I could pray for. God, win the lottery in Jesus' name. I'm just waiting. You can be waiting for a while. <laughs> That's not what I talking about. I admire some of your bold faith that you pray for things that if God answered, it would be clear it was God. That's, that's, but what if the boldest prayers aren't the things you're asking God for, but instead it's what you're surrendering to God? Think about the boldest prayers in Scripture. Jesus, let's put this in context, is on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to fall. If there's any other way, God, if there's any other way, there's not another way. Not my will. Your will be done. I propose to you that might be the boldest prayer that's ever been prayed. What about Mary? We only talk about Mary during Christmas time. We think about when Mary, she cries out to God. Imagine Mary being told that she's going to, she's a virgin, she's going to give birth to God's son. <laughs> oh, okay. Sounds awesome. Sign me up. No. That's going to mean that she's not going to get married. She might get stoned to death. Like, there's all kinds of stuff that takes place with that. And then she says, may it be to me as you have said. Tell me that's not bold. I was reading bold prayer requests this week. David Livingston is a missionary that walked 29,000 miles sharing the gospel. His wife died early on in his ministry. Let me read you a, a prayer that he prayed. Ask yourself if you could pray this prayer. He says, send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me. Really? Only sustain me. Sever any ties. That means prune anything out of my life, by the way. Sever any ties but the tie that binds me to your service and to your heart. That's a bold prayer of submission. The Apostle John writes this book. He disciples a guy named Polycarp, is known as a church father. Polycarp is a guy that when he was being martyred for his faith was asked to deny Jesus. He said, I served Jesus for 86 years. Jesus, or, Jesus never done me any wrong. 86 years of my life. I'm not going to curse him. And then he prays a prayer of submission. And on him saying, amen, they lit a fire to burn him alive. That's a prayer of submission. Many of you have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a resistor of Hitler, uh, an author and a pastor. He was hung six months before Germany surrendered, before yeah, they surrendered, and, and uh, he was killed. About 10 years later, there was a camp doctor who witnessed his death, and he said in his 50 years of being a doctor, he'd never seen someone so submitted as Bonhoeffer. What if, what if your bold prayers from abiding in Christ, the depth of the, the roots that grow into that soil from being connected to that vine, get so deep that you say, not my will, but your will be done, God. You take, you take what you want to take. You give what you want to give. Just bring glory to yourself through me. That's, that's what it looks like. And then the, the third thing that it looks like here, it's almost like obvious to say. I almost don't even want to say it to you. You think you just know it. It's a deepening dependence upon him. 
Just think about the, the vine and the, the metaphor here. That as you depend and life flows from the vine into you, that you grow more and more dependent on the vine. You get deeper and deeper with him. You grow in trust. Your faith gets bigger. There's lots of ways that we could say it, but it's kind of obvious what's happening here. But one of the ways that John points that out to us is he shows us it's possible to fake the fruit. You see verses 2 and verse 6? Every branch of me does not bear fruit. So there's branches. They look like branches. They don't bear any fruit. Do you see verse 6? If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. There's two main views on this passage of Scripture. I'm going to tell you which one you should think. One is that that means they're being thrown into hell. That's judgment. The other one is that they don't, they don't experience the blessing of God. That's judgment. Here's what we know for sure. He's talking about judgment here. Let's put it in context. This is in the shadow of Judas' betrayal. There's only 11 of them there now. There were 12. In fact, when there were 12, remember Jesus washed Judas' feet in John chapter 13? And then remember when Jesus was washing their feet and, and he gets to Peter and Peter says, no, 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 I'm not going to wash my feet. He's like, I don't wash my feet. You don't have no part in me. Abiding, that language. He says, you're not clean if I don't wash your feet. He says, all right, my hands and my head. You know, Peter's like all in. He's like, I just got to get your feet. All right, we're going to be good. But then Jesus says a statement. He says, not all of you are clean. But did you see in our passage in chapter 15 and verse 3? Now Judas isn't there. There's only 11 of them. And he says, already you are clean. He's talking to all of them. Because of the word that I've spoken to you. The one that wasn't clean, Judas. You know what Judas is in the Bible to us? He's a warning to everyone who professes Christ as Savior that it's possible to be close and associate with Jesus and not abide in Jesus. It's possible to replace intimacy with Jesus with activity for Jesus and maybe even fake yourself out. Because Jesus says one day, that people are going to come before him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Didn't we serve in bridge kids? Wasn't I on the setup team for 10 years? He didn't say the last part. But the idea, that we did a bunch of stuff, and it sure looked like fruit. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And here you got Judas. You, I don't know if you've read the Gospels, but Judas goes out with the other disciples and casts out demons. He teaches in Jesus' name and performs miracles. Jesus says it, was better had he, it would have been better for him had he never been born because he's going to experience the wrath of God for all of eternity. In John chapter 6, he says, one of you is a devil. But you know what's really, really wild? Is if you read John chapter 13, when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, they say, who is it? I think that they're wondering to themselves, is it me? Because I think that's probably what I'd be thinking if I were there. Is it me, Jesus? Because there's some wickedness in this heart. I love you. I'm going to be with you. I'm super thankful for your grace, but I don't know. I'm capable of a lot of stuff. And I think that's what they're thinking. I think that's what Peter's thinking. Ask him who it is, John. I don't even want to ask him. I have to say all kinds of stupid stuff. I don't even want to say this. And you know what Jesus says? He says, I'm going to take this bread. I'm going to dip it. I'm going to give it to the guy who's going to betray me. And he takes bread and he dips it. He gives it to Judas. And then Judas leaves. And here's the wild part about the passage. They don't go, it was Judas. They go, Judas must have went to buy it. We need more food. Oh, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> and I think to myself, I'm slow on the uptake sometime. Maybe. I don't think I could have missed that. But as I evaluate and think about it, I think, I wonder if it's because Judas was the last person they would have thought was faking it. Did Judas, before Judas actually sold Jesus out, did he know he was the one? 
Or did he fake himself out? It's possible to fake this. So how do you see it? Well, we look at verses 8 through 10. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. Okay, keep this analogy going. So you prove to be my, that's how we see it. You prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Selfless, unconditional, unlimited love. Abide in my love. You remain in my love, though. You, you, there's a commandment here. Something for you to do. This isn't passive. Abide in my love. How do we know if that's happening? It's not you earn his love by obeying his commands. Don't read the verse that way. It's not what he's saying. So if you keep my commands, you'll abide in my love. That's how we stay connected. Just that I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. And I think this is a key to understanding what he means by this joy, by the way. We'll come back to that. And he says, these things I've spoken to you is that you have joy. And it talks all about the joy. But then verses 12 and 13, what are you talking about? There's a lot of commandments. How do we know? This is the commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. So that you will see the supernatural love flowing through your life into the lives of others where you're willing to lay down your own interests for the sake of others. That's what the early Christians did. You'll abide in me and you'll see supernatural joy, fruit of the Spirit, supernatural kindness, supernatural gentleness. Not perfect, not all the time, but over the, over the landscape of looking at your life and your relationship with Jesus, we're going to see this and we're going to see Jesus because you're connected to the vine. That's how we're going to know. That's how we're going to see it. I was reading a story this week about a guy who was a DJ in New York City, struggling, up-and-coming guy. His name was Brendan, and uh, he was walking to his apartment one day in Brooklyn, and this woman panhandler was begging, and she asked him for money. He said, I don't have any money. He was telling the truth. He really didn't have any money. And uh, he saw her a few more times that week. At the end of the week, he told her, I think it was the third time, I don't have any money. And she said, you better not have any money because you keep telling me that. That's an awkward encounter, just FYI. And he turned it into something special. He said, I'll tell you what, ma'am. I'm on my way to a job interview today, and if I get this job, I'll take you off for Chinese food. And he got the job, and they went off for Chinese food. But the relationship didn't stop at Chinese food. They started a friendship that lasted for years. And there's a video, you can watch it online. Uh, Jackie is her name, she's a homeless woman. And they started this friendship, so much so that they started to care for one another. And Brendan uh, lost his job eventually and had to have his heat turned off in his apartment. So Jackie made him a blanket and went out and got groceries for him and brought him groceries. Homeless one, brought him groceries. And they became friends and he watched her walk through life too. She got to the point where she got on her feet and was able to get an apartment. He took her to Target and they started a registry for all the stuff that she needed for the apartment. He did a fundraiser for her, trying to raise 500 bucks to furnish her apartment. They raised $6,000. But instead of using all the money, they took everything they didn't need. They took that money and used it for other women that needed to get on their feet. Here's the thing. Brendan's not a Christian. Why did I tell you that story then? If a non-Christian can love like that, what should supernatural love look like? Because a lot of us would do that and be like, it's because I love Jesus. You could duct tape that fruit on, just so you know. Non-Christians will be doing hurricane relief. Non-Christians sometimes have better marriages than Christian marriage. Some non-Christian parents are nicer to their kids than Christian parents. What should super... If we're, we, should ha, we have the Spirit of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead in our lives. The fruit of Him being in our lives is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. What should that look like? The message here is not go try harder. That comes from being abiding in the vine. You've got to go deeper and more intimate with Jesus Christ, which means there's going to be pruning in your life, which is going to change the way that you pray. Praying in prayers of surrender is going to deepen your dependence upon Jesus, and the way that's going to look is his love is going to flow through. You don't need to go produce more love. As you receive the love of Christ into your life, some of you have like a blocker on that. You don't know how to receive love. As you receive the love of Christ into your life, 
that love's going to flow through your life, and that's going to produce the fruit that glorifies the Father. And oh, by the way, what, what is it that happens? Verse 11, I told you all this stuff. Here's why. So my joy. He's on his way to the cross. What's this joy? Here's the joy that he's talking about, I believe. John chapter 8, and verse 29 tells us, he says, I only do what the Father tells me to do. It's the joy of being in the center of what you were created to do, which sometimes is difficult circumstances, sometimes is amazing circumstances. But it's not about the circumstances. It's being so intimately connected with God that you're asking him, Where do you, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to do this? And that's a moment-by-moment -moment thing. It's not get up in the morning and do your devotions, just FYI. It's all the time, all the time. You walk in the Spirit. You know how you get out of step with the Spirit, you get right back in step with the Spirit. It happens to all of us. That's abiding in the vine, and that's the intimacy that we're talking about that produces the fruit that God's going for, that includes outreach and includes the fruit of the Spirit, includes holiness, all of that stuff. And, but what's the key? It's not a list. It's not keys. It's not a step. It's not a formula. It's Christ. I am the true vine. Abide in me. That's the command. So the joy is possible. The question is, will you obey the command to abide in Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your love. Thank you for, for these other people that want to love you with all of their hearts and all of their soul and all of their mind and all of their strength and that would flow into loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. And, but we're selfish and we are wicked and there's stuff in our hearts. And God, will you pierce that and convict that and cut that away and prune junk? And God, will you help us to, to even be gracious with ourselves and we could receive your love? Father, there are some here that need to trust your son, Jesus Christ, as Savior. If you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior right now, let me tell you how to do that. You acknowledge your sin before him. What is sin? Sin is your rebellion against God. Sin is when you put things above God. Sin is when you do stuff that you think you know better than God. You make yourself your own God. Turn from that is what the Bible says. And the Bible says if you believe that Jesus Christ died for that sin, rose from the dead, and you call Jesus Lord, and what that means is that you submit your life to him. It's not just using words, Jesus, you are Lord. It's that you surrender your life to him. So you pray that bold prayer, God, here's my life, it's yours. If you, wanna, if you want Jesus to be your Savior, then acknowledge your sin to him, ask him to forgive your sins, and surrender your life to him, and the Bible promises you will be rescued from your sin, and you'll be attached to the vine. Now, some of you are Christians, but you've lost the joy of your salvation, the joy of what it is to be forgiven. Psalm 51, David says, after a sin with Bathsheba, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Some of you need to pray that prayer and experience his forgiveness anew maybe repent like David some of you here you've known Jesus and, and you're not in some sin that you're trying to run from God and rebel against God or hide from everybody but, but, but sometimes we get stale and sometimes things get dry and maybe you pray that prayer like in verse 7 or you pray a bold prayer of surrender to him or maybe you pray like Mary may it be to me as you have said Lord deepen the roots of my faith grow me in depth of being attached to you as the vine he will, he will answer that prayer, but let me tell you, it's not just something he zaps you within this room. There may be circumstances. There may be tests that come. There could be people that come into your life that God's going to use to grow your faith in him. But he's doing a million things in that. He's doing something in their life, too, and how we make us sensitive to that. And grow us that we could have an impact for you. And it wouldn't just be about having better marriages or being strategically in reaching this city, but that we just abide in you so much that that would flow out of us. And then you turn this place, this church, this city, our homes, our marriages, our friendships, our small groups, upside down for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name I pray.